Hello and welcome to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. This is episode 21 of the most influential weekly podcast to come out of the Saskatchewan business community. On each episode, Paul Martin, business commentator and the chair of Martin Charlton Communications brings us the stories behind the headlines and explains why each story matters to you. On today's episode, we're looking at that relationship between employees and employers, and we hope the employees really truly understand how much investment an employer makes in them. It's not necessarily what they think. Paul, let's go down this road. Let's understand this. Where are we at? Well, you know, it's an interesting topic because it is a longstanding relationship, but I think it's one of those relationships where there's not very clear understanding between the two parties as to what it takes to make a successful uh, relationship out of this. That's mostly on the part of the employee because, you know, they've never been in the role of management, so they don't understand the push-pull that management goes through. And you and you hear terminology that sometimes uh, on my ear, at least grates a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, a worker who will say, it's my job. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Who does own a job? It's a question in its own right. But the reason I want to bring this up today is simply because of this post-COVID thing called the Great Resignation and really people starting to rethink their relationship between employer and employee. And as I talk to business people, I I do get the, the the clear sense that it's under review from both sides. It's not just the great resignation where workers are rethinking their future, but it's also on the other side where employers are rethinking their future. And it comes if you look even in the numbers, you'll see vacancy rates right now that are sitting at all-time highs. And so employers are creating opportunities. They can't find people to fill them. And this is chronic right across the board. It's not an industry or whatever. It's just everywhere you look, it's the most common theme you'll hear from employers. I'm fighting for talent. I can't find talent. Let's move some people in here. Uh, Open up the gates on immigration. Uh, Why don't people want to go to work? Serb did all of this. I mean, these are lines that I'm hearing all, all over the place. And so thought it might be instructive just to have this conversation about uh, that role and and how it's changing. Uh, I, I think that governments have a role in this, employers have a role in it, but let's start first with the employee. And I think very few employees really understand what it takes to support a job. So I am hired by an employer. What's my side of this? Most people think it's trade time for labor. Well, uh, yeah, that is how it's measured, but that's not what we're after. In fact, if you're an employee and you want to preserve your job, then you need to be talking to the employer about how much do I need to bill or how much value do I need to create in order for you to support this position so I don't have to go find another job. And employees are often really surprised at this, that, you know, in a service sector, if you're not sort of billing out your time that you're billing out isn't somewhere between two and five times your salary, that job isn't sustainable. Uh, And you'll say, well, why is that? If I bill $100 and they pay me $100, that's a kind of a, you know, break even sort of deal. Yeah, except for this. 
they also supply you with an office. They supply you with a computer and a phone and all of that stuff costs money. So there is also this notion that employees don't understand what we call payroll loading. This is where governments get into it, where there's Canada pension plan and unemployment insurance or no, sorry, employment insurance, workers comp premiums. Maybe there's a dental plan or a benefits program, perhaps even a pension plan. And you talk to many employers, actually a dollar of payroll costs the employer a dollar 65 and and you know this is you hear this in the conversation for example this is where i i get you know grates on my ear is we talk about a minimum wage and that's in the political realm well you know it's 12 bucks or 11 something or whatever it is right now but it not it really isn't i mean from a worker's perspective it's probably around nine uh, because after your canada pension and ei contributions or deductions and that kind of stuff from the employer's perspective it's the base salary of 11 or 12, whatever it is, plus all those load-ons. So there's CPP on top of that, EI, WCB, all of that stuff. And, and, you know, for the most part, I would guess minimum wage jobs are entry jobs, so they likely don't carry a pension plan or, you know, even a very detailed uh, benefits plan. So it's probably around that 12 bucks is likely closer to 14. So we talk about the minimum wage being 11, and in fact, that's a fallacy. It is like nine and a half or 10 for the worker, and it's about 13 or 14 for the employer. And this gap, I think, leads to tension and it leads to uh, problems of just simply a lack of understanding. So if you're in the service sector, you know, you, you've got to bill or generate on behalf of the organization. Probably, you know, I think if you said three to five times, likely five times your the cost it is to have you in the place, then your job is going to be secure. But if you can't generate value for the organization at that level, you're likely going to have to start shopping for another job because, you know, whether you do it or the employer does it, but this simply isn't an economic arrangement that works for both sides. Now, if you're in uh, something that's a capital intensive industry, think manufacturing, for example, you likely have to handle about 20 times worth of value of your monthly salary in order to preserve the job because simply most of the capital or the income that flows into the organization goes to pay for the equipment, assembly lines, uh, factories, welding, overhead cranes. I mean, pick a topic. Uh, There's a, a lot of cost that goes with it. Manufacturers will sometimes work on a bottom line. At the end of the year, they try to get like 5% as a profit. I mean, most people would not be satisfied with that, but that's, you know, like not a bad target for that's sustainable for existence. But I I talked with one business figure in the province who uses this, they're in the service sector. And, you know, where the conversation for me began was from this line where this business owner went to the employees of the organization and said, what do you think it should cost us to generate a dollar of revenue? And it's a really cool question, but if you work it back, it's really about margin. What margin should we be able to generate? And the responses they got were really quite telling to me that we need to have more conversations between employers and employees about how this stuff works. As, uh, he, he was targeting eh, 88 cents. So he's working on a 12% margin, which is pretty thin, actually. Uh, but uh, the employees were coming back because they didn't have a clue, right? They didn't have, they were guessing. And they were coming back at 68 cents and some of that stuff. And I thought, well, you know, both sides of the conversation or those that were talking to the business owner were sort of like, 
wow, if, you know, if we could get a 32% margin on a service business, that would be pretty slick, right? And, uh, and it just drove home the point that there is a lack of sort of understanding on this thing. And, and so, you know, what, what do we need to, to talk about to bring that level of understanding up a little bit? Well, first of all, maybe exposing employees a little bit to uh, the pressures that management goes through on and making a payroll. And, and you'll hear even in a conversation in, among business people, like the greatest fear in the world is not making the payroll. That brings the company down. That closes the enterprise down. So payroll is right front and center all, all the time. And we're hearing a lot about supply chain and that kind of stuff now. Yep, those things are inconveniences, they're interruptions, they're delays, but they don't they aren't necessarily company killers, at least not in the near term. Miss one payroll, and yeah, that's pretty much a, a company killer. So, it, you know, you, you start to think about that, you realize uh, from an employee's perspective, you need to understand this. The shareholder always gets paid last. Now, most employees, uh, that not most, but many employees that you talk to will think that every dollar of revenue that comes in the front door somehow finds its way into the genes of the owner. That, uh, you know, that's where the question comes from. How much should it cost us to make a dollar of revenue? And that they don't understand all of the costs that go in. And part of that is on the employer or management because they don't share the financials. And I get it. Part of it's that that's private information if you're a privately held company. And also, uh, most employees, the reason they're employees is they don't understand that stuff. They don't understand the economics piece of it, right? And so you just create a lot of confusion. And I am seeing uh, that confusion manifest itself now as the great resignation, rethinking my whole life. I'm seeing it also as something called disintermediation. There's a word for you. And this is the, there's a, a, a separation starting to occur between employee and employer. And the employer is saying, I'm not going to put you on the payroll anymore because it's just too much of a burden of the, these loading costs. And that's government's fault. But they're saying, I'll put you on contract. And uh, you will be given an assignment to do. And the gig economy is all about that. I mean, the gig economy is a term now. It's, it's you know, there is this relationship is evolving. And part of it is that somebody gets to be very specialized in a, in a role. And so they can work for multiple employers. And here's where I had it described to me this way. Uh, it's uh, way back in the very beginning, IBM built, all of our laptops or all our computers. They built the whole thing, right? They built the, the plastic frame that went around your desktop, all of that stuff. And somebody came to IBM and said, you build the whole computer? <sighs> I built just the chip. I got to be better at it than you. So then they would sub out, they would stop making chips internally and sub them out externally. Then somebody came along to the chip maker and said, you make the entire chip? I make just this little piece of the chip. I've got to be better at it than you. And so, you know, this is where they say the disintermediation, where it's breaking down all the components. And uh, they were envisioning actually a world where employers and employees would work off a bulletin board. And uh, I would be as an employer posting what I need. And as an employee, I would post my skill set and we would find some kind of a match. But we didn't ever get married for the 25-year uh, tenure that would come with employer and employee. 
And this this is, takes you back to that phrase of my job, right? Who owns that job? And it's different ways of doing things. And you can bemoan this all you want. But if the competitor, someone else down the street, is prepared to do it differently and do it cheaper, you're going to lose your job. I mean, it's that simple because, you know, you're going to lose market share. So these are the kinds of questions that I, I find are not really being discussed uh, they are among employers and business people, but not so much at the at the worker level. And I think we do them a disservice by not sort of informing them about here's here's the lay of the, the playing field that you're actually going to go on to. So some people will ask me, you know, well, okay, Mister Smarty Pants, if you've got that stuff, then what can employees do to uh, change that landscape a little bit? And and here's one of the things that I find this might be part of the great resignation. You know, I mean, maybe parents fit into this. And, and what are we doing? We're telling our kids, follow your passion. And, uh, you know, then you'll, if you do something you like every day, you'll never work a day in your life. It'll always be fun when you go in. I mean, these are always kind of, uh, you know, they're cutesy. And maybe there's something to it. I mean, I don't think you want to do something that you detest. But uh, I find very few of us actually. Uh, you know, it's, unless you go through a professional, like a, a, a college dedicated to being a teacher or a lawyer or a nurse or something, and most people just fall into their work. Uh, you know, job comes open, they start, and you know, 20 years later, they wake up, they're pretty well ensconced in that job, and they can't get out of it, or they can't afford to get out of it because it's created a lifestyle for them. But if if you're really troubled by the state of your career and this great resignation conversation after COVID is making you do some soul searching. I'll take you to a comment that a, a business person in Saskatchewan made to me once a senior executive of one of the big companies. And I thought it was really a brilliant line. And it just said, if my boss is mildly, even mildly interested in something, I am infatuated by it. <laughs> and, and so it, it's like, you know, pay attention to your customer's passion more than your passion. If you satisfy your customer's passion, you're always going to be doing all right. And that is a sensitivity thing about looking up and around and out when you're working, not just looking down at your own sort of little circle of the universe that is you. If you're looking around and seeing opportunity around it, and this is what entrepreneurs do all day long, is they're always looking for something new, something different, something fresh, different approach, solve a problem differently. That's how they make their living. And so, you know, if it works for those people who create the jobs, why wouldn't it work well for those who want to fill the jobs? And so I guess the moral of the story is if you're an employee and you're dissatisfied, start thinking like an employer. And here's these are the things that employers think about is what's it cost me to have that employee or that that position filled? Is it actually yielding a return for the shareholder who took the risk and got the money started and, you know, got the business started and and is the one probably who is uh, – you know, co-sign some sort of a, a loan guarantee at the bank or something that, uh, you know, has put their house on the line. The workers haven't done that. And uh, and yet we've created the, the a sort of a legislative environment, which makes a, a, a adversarial uh, situation where really it should be the other way around. And if you want to think about it as an employer, but you're a worker, think of it this way. You go to work every day and there's an assignment for you. So 
what the employer is doing is actually finding the work for you. You don't have to go around banging on doors saying, I can do this today. I mean, if you're mowing the lawn for a career or you're a high school kid and you you are got a little lawn cutting service, you have to run around to all the neighbors, bang on the doors. How about letting me mow your lawn? Here's the price, all that sort of stuff. So you're out selling. Now, that cost of acquiring a customer is you know, time, if nothing else, but it's really quite significant. So the employer is doing that for you as an employee. You show up every day, there's an assignment on your desk. You don't have to do that anymore. You know, that kind of convenience should have some cost attached to it. So the employer should get more than the employee in that because they're doing it for multiple people. And you heard me say at the at the very beginning, that um, that shareholders get paid last. I'll, I'll just give you a little descriptor of that. From uh, uh, there's a fellow named uh, Balaji Krishnamurthy who uh, has spoken to many business people in the province, and he's a guy from Seattle. He used to work in General Electric with, with uh, you know the big boys when GE was one of the the big companies around, and he's kind of an HR guy. And he says he 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 describes it this way. He said the bonus at the end of the year, or the profit sharing table, is a buffet. And in his world, and this is not one that every employer subscribes to, but it's the one that he describes it as. He says, everybody, depending on your role in the organization, gets a certain size plate. So the frontline worker gets the smallest plate, but they are the first in line when you go to the table. And they fill their plate, and if there's anything left over, then line management gets to go. Their plate's slightly larger, and this is why you aspire to move up, because you get a little more money. And they fill their plates. If there's anything left, it works its way up to the executive. And if there's anything left on the table, then they can fill their plate. But if the table's empty, they're done. They don't get any. And the last person to go to the buffet table is the CEO. And if the table is empty, they have the biggest plate, but they don't get anything. But if it's had a year where it's just still heaping on the table after everybody else has been had their plate filled, the CEO gets it all. Now, that's the CEO in the context of being the owner of the organization. The CEO would actually just get a certain size plate and whatever's left over goes to the shareholders, which in a, in a larger or publicly traded company, which is called dividends. And uh, often, you know, they will turn around and reinvest it in the company. Well, we need new equipment. We need new overhead cranes. The welders are all worn out. We need to get new ones. We need some new trucks. And so these conversations, I think, don't get had very much um, with uh, employers and employees. And the one person that I found really had success with this was the one who asked that question. What's it, what should it cost us to generate a dollar revenue? And so if you're an employer listening to this, you might want to think about that, talking to your people about you know, starting with that question and just seeing what kind of a response you get. And it will stimulate a conversation. And, and you know, if you need other uh, resources on this, there's, uh, you know, entire organizations dedicated to things like open book management. And uh, there's uh, one out of, I think, St. Louis, Missouri called The Game of Business. And uh, you know, this is where employee, uh, you know, organizations or individuals have tried to bridge that gap because they see the lack of understanding. And it's it's partly what causes the tension between the two sides. Uh, the, they don't understand what the other side is, you know, what the push-pull that drives them is. The confrontation between the two, the us versus them, doesn't help for sure. 
you're talking of the gig economy and we've got platforms like Fiverr for micro working. There's also specialist platforms where someone who's maybe in the finance sector or another business sector can really focus down to that individual element of what it is that they do and then attack a global market. But what you say is entirely true. It is a privilege to work for a company. That relationship should be respectful. And on the other side, that transparency as far as is possible from a leadership, an owner of an organization to what can be said is probably going to enrich the relationship. Paul, a huge thank you for this episode. And thank you for taking the time to listen to Saskatchewan Matters from Martin Charlton Communications. Do share these insights that power Saskatchewan with your colleagues and friends. Saskatchewan Matters is proud to be a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Thank you.